Please turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we'll be looking at verses 57, <clears throat> verses 57 through 80. Please give your attention to God's holy word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. For any preachers that have been in ministry for very long, the Advent season, which leads up to Christmas, usually is a challenge for us. The passages of Scripture which describe the events which surround the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're so familiar to most of you. And it really is a challenge for those of us who read these passages again to try to look at them with fresh eyes and to see them for what they are, this glorious revelation of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be comforted by them anew, to be excited about them in a new way when they're so familiar. But inevitably, what happens every year is that something will happen in our culture which will drive home how powerfully relevant these passages of the Scripture, what this truth is, will drive home how relevant it is to all our lives. 
This past week, that thing that helped me to focus in on the importance of the promises of the Lord's coming was all the talk that there was about Bethel Church. And I don't know if you heard about it. It was all over social media. It was even talked about in headlines of major newspapers like USA Today and the New York Post. What happened was this, this church, Bethel Church, it's a mega church out in California. It's known for the worship music that it produces. It's being sung by churches all over the world. But it's also unfortunately known for preaching what they call the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, which is a false gospel. And for also for making very wild claims about miracles that are accomplished in their midst in a, on an ongoing basis. For example, been, they've told stories about gold dusts coming down from heaven when they come together for worship or angel feathers coming down through the skies when they worship together. They've even talked about the glory cloud of the Old Testament that was over the tabernacle appearing in their worship services. Well, a week ago, the two-year-old daughter of one of their famous worship leaders died suddenly. And of course, in the midst of all the grief and sorrow, the parents actually went to the church and actually very consistent with the church's teaching, asked for the church to enter into a time of extraordinary prayer and worship, asking the Lord to resurrect their two-year-old child from the dead. And so what happened from Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all this past week, they had worship services, people crying and calling out to God to raise this little girl from the dead. I was glad to see yesterday that they ended the madness and they have acknowledged that the child is not going to be resurrected, but it has to cause a crisis of faith for those who preach the theology of health and wealth. The key, one of the key elements of a health and wealth or prosperity gospel, one of the key elements of that teaching is that the salvation that Christ came to provide for us provides not only spiritual healing, but physical, material, financial healing. And so if you really believe the gospel, if you really believe in Christ, he can take away your sickness, your illness, your problems, even death itself. And so they live by faith in the miracles that they claim. And so their prayers for this resurrection, really, if you listen to them, were really demands for Christ to fulfill the promise that they feel that, they, that he had given to them. I ask this because we, at Advent, in the Advent season, as we look to our Christmas celebration, isn't that really one of the most important questions we must ask? What is the promise that the birth of Jesus Christ fulfilled? What promise is given to us because the eternal Son of God took upon human flesh and lived among us as both God and man? What does that promise mean to you and me as we live our lives? Bethel Church has misinterpreted that promise, and all it has done is lead to heartache and disillusion. It's important that we dig in again to what these passages, these familiar passages teach us about the reason for Jesus coming so that we may lay hold of the promises of God because the promises of God cannot be broken. 
We have seen as we've looked at these familiar passages that the, the people who were involved in the original events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, that they pondered the meaning of these events, even as they were happening all around them. And that we in scripture have a, a record of these, a historical record of these ponderings, of these ruminations, of these contemplations upon the meaning of the birth of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at Mary's pondering at what we called the Magnificat, where she magnified the Lord for the great works that he had done for her and through her for all of God's people. This week, we look at Zechariah's pondering, his Benedictus, as it's been called historically in the church, because it's named after the Latin word for the first word in his prayer, his song, which is the word blessed. This song of Zechariah is called a song, if it is a song, again, we don't know if these were ever in the original uh, put to a tune or not. They may have just been prayers or expressions of praise. Here it's called a prophecy, but it's been called a song of hope because it's all about God's promise and God's fulfillment of his promise. And so that'll be our focus as we look at this passage today. Just to remind you who Zechariah is, he was a priest in Israel and he was serving in the temple one day when an angel appeared to him, speaking of miracles, and an angel told him that even though he was elderly and his wife was elderly and her wife had been barren her entire life and had never been able to bear a child, that they were miraculously going to be given a child. And that child, according to the angel, was going to be called John, and his role was to go before the Lord. In other words, to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, the Lord himself, to come to his people. He was to make them ready for that. That's what John's ministry would be about. And of course, you remember that Zechariah couldn't believe the promise. It was too fantastic for him to believe. And because he doubted, he was disciplined by the angel by having his ability to speak taken away temporarily. He was told that when the baby was born, only then would he be able to speak. Well, as we come to this passage at the end of Luke chapter 1, we fast forward nine months to the birth of this baby. John has been born and all the extended family and the neighbors, friends come to celebrate. And on the eighth day, they perform the rite, the ritual that God had ordered to be performed by his people, called circumcision, as they come together for, the, for John's circumcision, then the baby would be named. Now, since this child was miraculous, and also, I think, because this obviously would be the only child that Zechariah and Elizabeth would ever have, everyone expected them to name the child after the father, or maybe the grandfather, or at least to give him a family name. Now, this wasn't always done in Israel. It wasn't like Children are automatically named after their father or a family member. But I think in this case, they expected it because of the nature of this child's birth and the fact that he was the only child this, that this couple would have. And so what, what else would you want to give the father's name to pass the name on to the next generation? That's what they expected. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. And they said, but you don't have any family members named John. What's so special about the name John? And so they went to Zechariah to see if he would overrule his wife and have the child named differently. And it's interesting that it says here that they made signs to Zechariah. Now remember, he's mute, he can't speak. 
why are they making signs in order to communicate with him? And at first I kind of wondered, well, maybe that's for the same reason why people shout at people who are blind. You know, it's like you kind of misjudge the, the disability and you, you shout to overcome it somehow. Maybe that's what's going on here, but probably the case is, probably because he was elderly, maybe he was hard of hearing. Maybe he really was deaf. Or maybe that was part of the punishment that actually wasn't mentioned. But at any rate, they had to use sign language in some way to communicate to him, what do you want your child to be named? And he said, his name is John. He was obedient to what the angel had commanded, the word of the Lord. As soon as Zechariah gives the child his name, the name commanded by the Lord, he is therefore able to speak, just as the angel had prophesied. And he speaks and he praises God. And probably the content of what he says is what's recorded in verses 67 through 79. That's probably what his praise was. It might have been something that that he said later, but it probably is what he said as he was filled with the Spirit, rejoicing over God's provision in John's birth. I do want to point out, though, that it is significant that the content of what Zechariah says comes when John was circumcised. This is very significant because it shows you what, what Zechariah's mindset was. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. God had given Abraham a promise. He he chose Abraham sovereignly, brought him to himself, adopted him as his own child, and then said, I am going to give you a family. And again, there's a miraculous birth. He and Sarah were also unable to have children. And yet God miraculously gives them a child. And he promises that through his child, there would become a great family that would be more numerous than the sands on the seashore, and that this great family would become a great nation. And out of this great nation, in a great land, would come one who would be a blessing to all nations. And that promise of the one whom God would send to bless all nations is the hope of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant, for those who were part of Abraham's family, the sign of belonging to the visible people of God in the old covenant was the sign of circumcision. In the New Testament, that sign has been replaced with baptism. It marks believers and their children as being a part of God's covenant family. And it is a sign of God's work, not man's work, but God's work. It's a sign of what God would do to save his people. And that's what circumcision was. And it's in that event that Zechariah contemplates how the promise given to Abraham is being fulfilled right before his own eyes. The real question that Zechariah answers in this prayer, this song, is what is the promise of the coming of the Messiah? What is the promise that accompanies the appearance of the Son of God? As I was reading and listening to a number of responses to what was going on with the Bethel Church out in California this week, I was struck by one statement that was made by Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary. He said, we are not promised less than what Bethel Church promises, we are promised more. We are not promised less than Bethel Church promises. We are not promised less than a temporary physical resuscitation of our bodies so that we can suffer and die again. 
We are promised far more than that in the coming of Jesus Christ. The first promise that Zechariah points us to is that this Christ has come to redeem us. For he, it says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The purpose of the visitation of the Son of God in the birth in Bethlehem was to redeem us. Now the word redemption these days and for a long time has been a religious word. It's Christianese. People out there in the streets don't talk about redemption unless they're taking coupons to the grocery store. They don't talk about redemption. What's redemption? But in the first century, matter of fact, any century, really, up until the last couple of centuries, the word redemption was a very important secular word, a very important word to all of culture, to all people, because so much of the world was living in slavery. Slavery has been a big part of every culture up until very recently in history. And redemption was the way out of slavery. Redemption, the word redemption in Greek and Roman culture, what that word meant was to be set free from slavery because somebody paid a great price to free you. To be set free from slavery because somebody paid a great price in order to free you. They paid a ransom. You are bound up in slavery. You are helpless and hopeless. And somebody pays your debt or pays a price in order to free you. That's redemption. They pay it so that you can be free. You see, that redemption imagery is all over the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The one story of the Old Testament that is repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament as people were waiting for the Messiah, the Christ to come, was the story of the Exodus. Because the Exodus story is a shadow of what Christ would later come to do. Of course, you remember in the Exodus, God raises up Moses as a mediator, as a deliverer. And Moses is sent to the most powerful man on the planet. And he, and he goes to that man, he says, let my people go. The people of God, the people of Abraham's family, who had been kept captive, who had been kept in terrible, burdensome slavery for generation upon generation, Moses goes, and through the miracles that God gives to him, he is able to free God's people from slavery, lead them out of bondage, and lead them to the promised land. Throughout the Old Testament, that is repeated because it is a shadow, it's an image, it's a picture of what the Messiah would one day come to do to provide a far greater exodus, a far greater deliverance from a far greater slavery. Interestingly, in Luke chapter 9, we'll get to this in several months, but in Luke chapter 9, Jesus goes up to the top of a mountain and he brings Peter and James and John with him. And at the top of the mountain, he is, in the language of scripture, transfigured. He's glorified. His, the glory of heaven that he, he left to come to earth is temporarily placed upon him. And as he is in that state of transfiguration, it says that two figures from the old covenant history of God's people appear and talk with him. Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law of God and also the first great exodus, deliverance from slavery, and Elijah, the one who represented the prophetic ministry of calling people to put their hope in the coming Messiah. 
Moses and Elijah come to meet with Christ. What did they talk about? There's only one of the three gospels where this story is related. There's only one gospel that tells any, us anything about what they talked about. Wouldn't you have loved to listen in on that conversation? What Luke tells us in chapter 9 is this is what they talk about. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What's interesting is in the original Greek language, if you were reading this in the original language, the word departure is the word exodus. Moses and Elijah came to support, encourage, stand by Jesus as he was about to go to Jerusalem to provide the exodus that God's people had provided, had been promised, had been waiting for for all these generations. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. But in order to free people, that's the promise that Christ would come to free us from slavery, a far greater slavery than the kind of bondage that they suffered from in Egypt. In order to do that, you've got to defeat the enemies of God's people. So that's the second promise that Zechariah focuses in on. Christ, the Christ, came to rescue us from the hands of our enemies. Look at verses 69 to 71. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's part of his redeeming work, is to save us from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. He talks about a horn of salvation. In this culture, we probably think of an instrument, a horn. But in that culture, the horn, and scripturally speaking, when a horn is used as a metaphor like that, the horn is the horn of an animal, the business end of an animal. The horn of a ram, the horn of an ox, the horn of a bull. I tend to think of a horn of a rhinoceros. It's a, it was a symbol of destructive strength. Don't mess with the front end of a rhinoceros. That's the, that's the concept. The horn of salvation is the power of salvation that God would send into the world. And Zechariah says in verses 69 and 70, lest we think that he's talking about his own son, John. It'd be easy to, to misread this whole prophecy and think that he's talking about John. He doesn't talk about John until the very end. He makes it clear who he's talking about in verses 69 and 70, where he says, in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zechariah was of the tribe of Levi. He was a priest. His son John would be of the tribe of Levi. It's the son of Mary who's already been made clear here in chapter 1 who was of the house of David. He was the one who would be born the greater son of David to establish the eternal kingdom that David was promised. So in the birth of Jesus, God, Zechariah is saying, in the birth of Jesus, the son of David, God is raising up his horn of power to destroy the enemies of God's people and to provide salvation for his people. What enemies? What enemies is he talking about? Many Jews in Zechariah's day held to their own form of prosperity gospel or health and wealth teaching because they expected the Messiah to come and establish an earthly kingdom. They expected the Messiah to come with the power of sword and shield and chariot. They expected the Messiah to come and destroy their political and social enemies like Rome or the Gentiles. 
and restore Israel to world domination like it was in the days of King David and Solomon. That's what they hoped for. That's what they expected. To usher in an age of earthly health, wealth, earthly power, and prosperity. And it was a false hope. Just as health and wealth theology is false hope today, it was false hope back then as well. That's not the enemy's Those aren't the enemies that Jesus had to come and destroy. As you continue to read Zechariah's prophecy, you'll find out that he's not talking about political enemies or military enemies like the Philistines of the Old Testament or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Romans. He was talking about spiritual powers, spiritual enemies, which are real, just as real as physical enemies. And the enslavement that the people of God were under was not material or financial or physical. It was spiritual enslavement that needed to be broken. That's why Paul would later say that our greatest enemies are not flesh and blood. They are Satan, sin, and death. Those are the enemies that had to be defeated before we could talk about any kind of physical, financial, or emotional healing. That's the bondage that had to be broken. Zechariah makes this clear at the very end of his prayer where he does shift from talking about the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, and he begins to talk about his son, John. He talks about what his ministry would be beginning in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. That's the salvation that he came to give in his first coming. Not salvation from physical enemies, but salvation from bondage to sin. Guilt before our holy God. Even salvation from the holy and just wrath of God that our sins deserve. That's the kind of salvation that we needed. Any kind of earthly salvation or deliverance or freedom would be meaningless without that spiritual deliverance. John, the ministry of John the Baptist is described over in Luke chapter 3, just a couple of chapters later. It talks about the beginning of his ministry. It says in verse 3, And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John had to go and preach repentance to call upon the people to recognize their sin before a holy God and to recognize that they are under the wrath of God and without without anybody intervening, without a mediator, they were hopeless and lost for eternity under God's wrath. He called them to repentance to prepare for the Christ to come, to bring the good news of how to be at peace with God, how to be reconciled to God. As the angel would later tell Joseph, Mary's betrothed in Matthew 1.21, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. 
freedom. We need freedom, but it comes through forgiveness and peace with God so that we can be free to serve the Lord. And that's true freedom, and that's the third promise that Zechariah focuses upon, that Christ came in order to make us righteous. Verses 74 and 75, Zechariah says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That is true freedom. To serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. That's true freedom. See, our, our culture loves freedom. To be an American means that first and foremost, you believe in freedom. We fight for freedom. We try to export freedom to other countries. We're all about freedom. But unfortunately, in the world, the way they define freedom is freedom to do as you please. Freedom to glorify yourself, to build yourself up, to make a reputation for yourself, to make a living for yourself, to have all kinds of great things. Freedom to pursue your desires to your heart's content, to pursue your lusts without interference. Freedom to have, freedom to do, freedom to be, whatever you want. That's freedom in the eyes of this world. That's not biblical freedom. That's what the Bible calls sin, actually, to live that life. In Christ, we are free from the fear of God's wrath, and that's the ultimate freedom we need. We are free from the fear fear of God's wrath. We are free to know God, our creator. We are free to love God. We are free to do the will of God, which is what is best for our lives. His will is perfect. His will is where we really prosper. And because of Christ's coming, we can be free to do his will. God's purpose in saving us freeing us, rescuing us from our enemies. His purpose is that he might recreate us into the image of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. It's described in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the great plan of God. And it was the coming of Christ that made that happen. There's so much darkness in the world. So much darkness. People are enslaved. People are lost, they are broken, they are without hope. This darkness has come by Satan's enticement and seduction. This darkness has come because we have believed his lies and we've sought to live in our own ways, to our own glory, for our own desires, and we've become slaves to sin and we are going to die. And when we die... If Christ had not come, we would remain forever under the wrath of God. That's why Zechariah ends his prophecy by talking about the coming of the Christ that his son John will prepare the people for, that this coming of Christ would be like the dawning of a new day. He actually calls Christ the sunrise. Other scriptures call him the morning star, the day star, whatever. He is the coming of light into the world. That's John chapter 1. 
But he says here in verse 78 and 79, The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's what Isaiah promised 800 years earlier. We talked about the patience of God as he's fulfilled his covenant promises to his people. 800 years earlier, this is what Isaiah said, talking about that same sunrise, that same dawning of light coming into the darkness of this broken and fallen world, where he says, the people who walked in darkness, this is Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Into the darkness of this world's ignorance and fear and hopelessness and delusion has come the light of truth the light of life, the light of hope, the light of joy, the light of peace, and the light of righteousness. That is salvation. And Christ brought it when he came the first time and when he comes again, and he will come again, he will bring it to completion. Whether you realize it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, you live every day of your life by promises. You cannot live without putting your faith in the promises of others. If you're married... You live your, your day putting your faith in the promise of your wife to be faithful to you or your husband to be faithful to you. You put your faith in the promise of the government to protect your rights. You trust in the banks to protect your money. You trust in your boss that you're going to get paid for the work that you do. You trust the university to give you the proper credentials so that you can move on with your career. You trust that police and firemen are going to show up when they're needed. You trust the mechanic when he says, yes, I did fix your car. Every day you live by promises. And some of you have been really broken and hurt by the fact that people have not kept their promises. And you find it hard to trust because people have broken their promises to you so often. Trust is the basis of the foundation of any relationship, and when you lose trust, the relationship's gone. What Zechariah is trying to tell us in this passage, what I'm trying to tell you based on what Zechariah has said, is that you can trust God. God has never broken a promise. His promises will come to pass. God has promised us life eternal. Not temporary, not like, and you know, that's the problem is that people misinterpret his promises sometimes. Like Bethel Church. Probably in some cases with good intentions, in other cases maybe not so good. But they have misinterpreted God's promise and therefore they feel that God has let them down. But if you truly understand his word, and his spirit is given to us to understand his word, His promises are the foundation of our lives. 
We live every day trusting that what he has said is true, that Jesus Christ is who the word of God says that he is, and that he will complete the work that he has begun within us. In the birth of Christ, God has visited his people, and the reason for his visit is to meet our greatest needs in life. Those greatest needs, as Zechariah has laid them out for us here today, the greatest needs of our life are, one, to be freed from slavery to sin and death, two, to be forgiven and be at peace with God, and three, to be righteous, to become like Jesus Christ. Those are our three greatest needs. That's why Christ came And if you believe in him and trust in him, he will complete his promise. He will do what he has said. Let me close with this passage from Hebrews chapter 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath or a covenant, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Does your soul have that anchor this morning? If not, as you celebrate the first coming of Christ, pray that your faith in the final fulfillment of those promises will be strengthened in this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, Help us to continually be digging into these promises that are given to us by the prophets and the apostles and by the Lord Jesus himself, that we might not twist them, that we might not misunderstand them, that we might not misapply them, but that we might embrace them as they truly are given by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might know what is true, that we might know what is eternal, and that we might know the way to peace and reconciliation with you. Father, thank you for sending Christ the first time, and we anxiously long for him to come again. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.